All right, if, uh, whoa, I'm hot. Okay, if, if everyone will make their way back to their seats, we will commence with the second character trait. So the word is gentleness or meekness, right? This is the word that's used in Galatians 6.1. We, we mentioned this a moment ago. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, or you could translate that, you who have the spirit. In other words, all of us have the responsibility to do this. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now granted, obeying this command could result in a conflict. But not following it properly, I mean to the letter, with the gentleness, will almost certainly produce a conflict. So when someone we know who professes Christ has fallen into a pattern of sin, and that's that, it's a pattern here. You know, if, if, we, if we confronted everybody over every sin, I mean, some days there wouldn't be enough time just to write everybody's sin down, let alone to go back and to confront them. So you overlook as much as you possibly can. But the things you can't overlook, because they're patterns, you have to say something about. You know, and that brings up an interesting point. We are talking about marriage. You know, guys, let's suppose your wife has a pattern of something. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a self-control issue. But at the end of the day, it's no skin off your nose. You know what? I'm going to be 20, 30 pounds overweight. That's right. It's no big deal for me. But if it's a sin, and if it's a pattern, you're not really loving your wife if you don't try to help her deal with it. Even if, as we say in New York, it's no skin off your nose, if it's a sin and if it's a pattern, you need to try to help your wife with that. And that's really true of all of us. Husband, ladies, you're your husband's helper. And if there's anything God wants you to help your husband with is with the sanctification and help him be a better Christian. So, yes, you have to do with the meek and a quiet spirit. Same word, by the way, meek. I'm talking about here, gentle and quiet spirit. But, um, you know, you, you have to help him because you're involved in his sanctification too. You know, he may be the head, but you're the neck that turns the head, right? <laughs> now, there's no exact equivalent to this Greek word for gentleness. There's really two parts to it. One part actually has to do with humility. There's a sense in which gentleness acknowledges its own frailty. It's sort of like as a counselor. The attitude I try to have with my counselee is not that I'm, I'm some kind of expert guru who knows all this stuff that's going to help them, you know, like Freud would maybe with his patients. No, I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread. I might say to them, the things I'm telling you my, today, I had to tell myself just three weeks ago. I might say to them, um, I know I'm counseling you today, but two weeks from now, I could be on that side of the desk and I could be coming to you for counsel. It, that's the idea. We recognize that we, we are sinners and we, we have a, um, a frailty. We, we, we always leave, even when we're c confronting, we leave a crack in the door for the possibility that we may be wrong and the other person may be right. So all of that is compacted in this Greek word for gentleness, but there's another element of this word, really a bigger element, and that's what we want to look at today. It has to do with controlling one's temper. Um, anger is given a lot of print in the Bible. Uh, of all the emotions in the Bible, anger is mentioned more than any other. It's mentioned over 500 times. Fear is mentioned 389 times. So, of all the issues that we have to deal with in counseling, you know, we have to deal with anger and anger-related issues like, you know, bitterness, um, wrath, impatience, um, a lot. It's just a big deal. So again, we're going to take a look at different definitions of gentleness and uh, as we go through this and take a look at its antithesis, anger. So first of all, gentleness is the ability to distinguish between righteous anger and sinful anger. Now, it's not just anger, but every emotion that you and I can experience has power for good as well as potential for evil. God made all the emotions that we can experience. Anger is no exception. You say, every emotion? Well, what about jealousy? 
Well, sure. First of all, God is a jealous God, right? You remember Paul was jealous for the Corinthians? I'm jealous with you for, with a godly jealousy. And he says, I'm afraid for you. Well, what is jealousy? Jealousy is a fear. It's a fear of being displaced by something or someone else. And that's what the deal was with Paul. He was afraid, not selfishly, that the Corinthians were going to displace him, uh, uh, dis- displace um, the Lord. But he was concerned that they were going to displace their love for Christ with love for something else. You say, what about hate? Well, as Christians, we're actually commanded to hate. You who love the Lord, Psalm 9710, hate evil. The book of Proverbs also speaks positively about hating evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Um, and the same, of course, is true for anger. Now, this, this passage uh, in, uh, that we're looking at, Ephesians 4, I mean, it's really, a, you could do a, a ton of counseling out of the book of Ephesians, and this passage and, and chapter 5, chapter 4 and chapter 5, just in 6, just pregnant with all kinds of counseling applications. But um, in verse 26, you're actually commanded to be angry. It's an imperative in the Greek. Be angry in your anger. Do not sin. And then, and by the way, you know, Ecclesiastes says there's time for anger, right? Ecclesiastes 3. And then, five verses later, after commanding us to be angry, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So you have both kinds of anger in, uh, in the same passage. But we have to realize that most of the references to anger in the Bible are of the unholy variety. And although it's possible to be angry and not sin, sinful anger is much more common. As a friend of mine says, righteous anger is kind of hard to come by. But, you know, it is there. But the point is, if we're going to learn how to be gentle, we have to make a distinction between the right kind of anger and the wrong kind of anger. Hebrews 5.14 says, uh, But solid food is for the mature, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. So when our anger is due to concern that a holy God has been offended by another's behavior, then that anger is lawful. In other words, if we're angry because God's revealed will, as found in the Bible, is violated, if we're angry, in other words, because somebody sinned, then our anger is not rooted in sin. But on the other hand, if our anger is not the result of, uh, of somebody's sin against God, but as a result of having our own, not having our own desires met, then chances are that anger is sinful. So basically, if we're angry because somebody sinned, it's indication that uh, we have the right anger. And if we're angry because somebody is not giving us what we want, then that's indicative of the fact that we have the wrong kind of anger. So unholy anger, when God doesn't get what he wants. You say, Lou, we're, we're reformed. We believe God always gets what he wants. I'm not talking about the decretive will of God. I'm talking about the revealed will of God. When we're angry because somebody sins, that's the right kind of anger. When we're angry because we don't get what we want, that's the wrong kind of anger. When we're angry sinfully, it's indicative of the fact that we're being the boss, the Lord of our life when we have holy anger. It's indicative of the fact that Christ is the Lord of our life. By the way, what kind of anger is it when we're angry because somebody sinned, but the sin was also against us? Yes, we sinned against God, but it was also against us. Is that the right kind of anger or the wrong kind of anger? It's mixed. That's exactly right. See, you can have both righteous anger and sinful anger abiding in your heart at the same time. Now, and as we've seen already, and as we're going to see before we're through today, you know, the Bible requires us in some instances to go and talk to that person about his sin. And so what do you do when you have both kinds of anger in your heart? Well, you better get your heart in such a state, and Jesus doesn't give you much time to do this, you know, you got to do it pretty quickly. You have to get your heart in such a state that you've got a whole lot more of the right kind of anger 
uh, than the wrong kind of anger. Because if you, if you go <laughs> with the, those mixed motives and you have a lot more sinful anger than righteous anger, chances are you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, foot and just blow up the whole torpedo, the whole uh, peacemaking process. Okay, so David Powelson has this little diagram that I put in the heart of anger. Um, where unholy angry anger is when my will is violated, sinful anger is when God's will is violated. All right. In the case of sinful anger, what motivates me is my idolatrous desire. What motivates me to go... Um, is God's glory when I have the right kind of anger. Now, secondly, gentleness is not allowing any desire to become so deep-rooted that it produces anger, either in an attempt to obtain the desire or as a result of not being able to obtain the desire. There's a very helpful passage of Scripture that speaks about conflict and its relation to idolatrous desire. It's found in the fourth book of the uh, fourth chapter of the book of James. Actually, I have it on this slide here. Um, James asks a question, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Do they not come from the desires that are at war in your members? So, he says, and, and the words that James used to describe the conflicts that the Christians were having, this is probably the first book of the New Testament that was written. And the Christians to whom James were having were having very serious conflicts with each other. And he uses the word battles and wars to describe the tension that exists between them. And he asks them a question and he answers, why are you getting so angry? Where is all of this conflict coming from? He says, is not the, the, the conflict, is not the quarrels the result of your desires. And he says these desires are at war in your members. Now there's two things about that I want to mention. First, the word desire is not necessarily a word that means a sinful desire. Most of the time in the Bible it's used to describe sinful desires, but there are times when the word is used just to describe a normal desire. It can be a good desire. So let's suppose you have a good desire, like a desire for your wife to have a quiet spirit, a meek spirit, and to talk to you with respect. You know it's not a sinful desire because you've got a half a dozen scriptures to substantiate the fact that she should do that. And so, you know, when you, she doesn't do that, it's real easy for you to get angry. Or ladies, suppose it's a desire for your husband to communicate with you. And you know it's the right thing because, as we said, you know, God made man to be the initiator because he's supposed to live with you in an understanding way. You've got all kinds of scripture, right? You have a desire for your children to obey you. You've got all kinds of scripture about that. But if that desire, good as it may be, is so deep-rooted, if it's so dug into your heart, the, the word at war, th- think about th- these desires are at war in your members. If that desire is so deep-rooted, is so dug into your heart that you sin in order to get it, or you sin by getting angry because you can't have it, then that desire is sinful. But think about, okay, so in Gaza, they're finding all kinds of underground tunnels, right? This is a kind of warfare. You dig into the ground. We found Saddam Hussein in a spider hole. You remember during Desert Storm, you know, the Iraqis had dug into the ground. There's actually a Hebrew word for war in the Old Testament that means to be entrenched. So one concept of war, and that's the way I like to think of this verse when I, when I think about it, these desires are entrenched. They're at war in your members. They're not only fighting each other, but they're like dug into your heart. So you have this desire... And it's so strong that you're willing to sin in order to get it or sin because you can't have it. At that point in time, despite the fact that there may be 16 scriptures to substantiate the fact that it's not inherently a sinful desire, if you sin because someone doesn't give you that good desire, then that desire is sinful, at least momentarily. Why? Because at that moment, you wanted it so much that you were willing to sin in order to get it or sin because you couldn't have it because somebody kept you from having it. 
So, we all know that um, it's not a sin to go fishing, right? I mean, that's not a sin. In fact, those of us who understand the Greek and the Hebrew understand that fishing is really the biblical sport. <laughs> and I love to fish. So, it's the first day of trout season, say, and um, the alarm goes off at 4 o'clock, and that's about the only time the alarm goes off at 4 o'clock, except like when I have to come to Fredericksburg, Texas, and <laughs> catch an early flight. And I'm about ready to get up, I get out of bed, and all of a sudden I feel my, my wife's uh, hand around my wrist, and I'm trying to get out of bed, and she's kind of keeping me, you know, back. And I say, what is it, honey? Actually, she's on this side. I say, what is it, honey? And... Um, she says, um, well, listen, I know you want to go fishing today, but do you remember I told you yesterday the girls and I were not feeling well? Yeah. Well, honey, um, I hate to tell you this, but like, I've been up all night and I'm nauseous and the girls have been throwing up. And you know, bottom line is, we have to go to the doctor. I'm just too nauseous to take us to the doctor. Is there any way you could postpone your fishing trip? I mean, you, maybe you can go later on today. Maybe you can go like at 9 o'clock instead of 4 o'clock and take us to the doctor's. On Saturday morning, Doc in the Box opens up at, you know, 8.30. Could you kind of hang back for a couple hours? And I say to her, "Um, Honey, you knew you were sick yesterday. Um, You should have gone to the doctor yesterday. I hate it for you, but I'm going fishing. Goodbye. No, I didn't say that. Exactly. But if I were to have said that, do you see how, how selfish that would have been? Do you see how at that, in that situation, my desire to go sin fishing would have been sinful, not because this verse appears in the Bible, you shall not want to go fishing, or fishing's unbiblical, but because at that moment, my desire to go fishing trumped my desire to take care of my family. But let's suppose I do the right thing. And I say, okay, look, the dock opens at 8.30. Let's have everybody in the car by 10 minutes late. I want to get there early. I want you to be the first ones there, and we'll get you, uh, we'll get you in out of there as quickly as possible. And so we go back to bed for a couple hours, get everybody up, and off our, on our way to the doctor's. Problem is, there's six bodies of water between my house and the doctor's office. So over the first pond, I do fine, and over the second, first lake, I do fine. But then go over the first stream. It's like 16 people out there fishing, you know. And I say, Kim, look at all these people out here. I can't believe that you didn't go to the doctor yesterday. You knew. You knew today was the first day of trout season. You knew. I, I, I've been looking forward for months. I've been tying flies all winter long because I look forward to this day so much. And because you were not considerate enough to go to the doctor yesterday, I can't go fishing. You see all those people? They're stealing my fish. <laughs> now, that didn't happen either exactly that way. But in a situation like that, do you see how my desire for fishing at that moment would have been sinful because I wanted it so much that when it was kept from me, I became sinfully angry. Sinful anger is sort of like God's built-in smoke detector. It lets us know that we're coveting something to the point of idolatry. Twice in the Bible... In the New Testament, idolatry is connected to covetousness. First, in Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and that's more of a sensual desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in Ephesians 5, it says, for this you know with certainty that no immoral person or co- impure person, or covetous man. This is a, this is a type, type. This is a type of person, right? A covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so when we find ourselves getting angry in the midst of conflict, it's wise to ask ourselves a couple of questions. What is it that my opponent is not giving me? And what is it that I want so much that I'm willing to sin in order to get it. Number three, gentleness is knowing how to harness righteous anger so that it may be used to destroy only those things which God would approve. When we're faced with a problem, there is always the potential for us to become angry. Now, You know, I said that anger is something that God gave us. God is angry at the wicked every day. 
Anger has a good purpose. What do you think the good purpose of anger is? What's that? Warning. Warning, okay. What's that? Okay, to learn to hate sin, that's good. It's what? It's powerful. Powerful emotion, power and energy. Yeah, I mean, when you get angry, your adrenal glands secrete adrenaline into your bloodstream and you have all of this energy. What did God do that for? Okay, so I have all this energy. Now what am I going to do with it? Was it a mistake? Now again, if it's, the, if it's sinful anger, then it's there for, for, for wrong purposes. But let's just suppose it's the righteous, it's the righteous kind of, of anger. Okay? Well... Let me tell you what not to do with it, first of all. There are two sinful extremes that people tend to go to when they are angry. Some people, when they become angry, they internalize the anger, right? They keep it in. We use the very technical term, theological term. We say that people clam up when they get angry. So what do people in Fredericksburg do? What do Texans do when they clam up? Stew. Stew. Brood. They're what? Well, that was clam chowder. <laughs> oh, clam chowder, yeah. Simmer. New England or Manhattan? Simmer. They simmer, okay, yeah. Right, now, you're really bringing up an interesting one. I wasn't going to say this, but you know how many, think about how many, I said 500 times in the Bible, right? Think about how many terms we have in the English language for anger. Think, you know, this hot under, the, I mean, these visceral terms, hot under the collar, right? Uh, smoldering, steaming, boiling. We talk about hotheads. We have anger and wrath and clamor. I mean, in that Ephesians 4 passage, we have like four different words for anger. All kinds of words in our language to describe anger. I mean, it's a big deal. Okay, so what else do Texans do when they get angry? We get our gun. We get our gun. All right. You know, you... You, and it, it's fine, you know, a, a good response might be to create certain kinds of boundaries, but a bad, a bad response would be to create uh, unbiblical boundaries. You know, there's that, there's that book out there, Boundaries. Somebody needs to write a book about boundaries that really looks at it from a biblical perspective because, you know, that book, while well, it's got some good stuff in it, really, I think, misses the point in a few places. In any event, um, do you ever withdraw from your spouse? Or give the other person the cold shoulder? What's the biblical description of giving somebody the cold shoulder? What's the sin involved in giving the cold shoulder? How would you describe it biblically? It's, it's always, you're right, in the sense that vengeance always is, almost always indicative of the fact that somebody's bitter. So that's the... Um, that's the underlying motivation, but, but on the surface, let, let me help you out here. Okay, what's that? Well, all anger, all sinful anger is rooted in idolatry. I'm more specific than that. And as a biblical counselor, I, I really want to encourage everybody because I have to do this. You can't solve a problem biblically unless you can verse diagnose it in biblical terms. Not in the words that man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, interpreting spiritual problems in spiritual terms. Okay. So, um, a wife says to her husband, you, or, or thinks this about her husband, you turkey. I've told you I don't know how many times and how many different ways how much it really bugs me when you do that. And you just don't get it. You don't have a clue. So the only thing I know to do is to give you a taste of your own medicine. And when I think that you understand how much it really bugs me when you do that, maybe in a few days I'll start talking to you again. Now that's not necessarily the verbatim, but that's the sentiment behind vengeance. And what is that? I said it. That's the sentiment behind the cold shoulder. It's vengeance. Do you see that? Okay. All right. The other end of the spectrum is ventilation or blowing up. So what do Texans do besides getting their gun and <laughs> practicing in the backyard, you know, um, when they get angry? How do they blow up? Okay. 
All right? They, they, they'll, they'll say things, they'll make snap decisions and um, make hasty decisions, but basically they'll, they'll use their words, right? They'll, they'll vindictively say things to the other person. Or behind their backs. They'll gossip, they'll slander them. That might be clam up. Yeah, that might be clam up. But I mean, it's true. Just go for a walk, go for a drive. You know, and rather say, look, I've got to calm down. I'll be back in 20 minutes. They'll just leave, not say a word, and, you know, kind of stick the knife in. I may or may not be back. Maybe, maybe later, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. And Tony said this early, but you know what? You kick the dog, you take it out on somebody else. You take it out on somebody else, yeah. So what? So, yeah, we raise our voices. Yell, scream, call people names, use profanity. I mean, all kinds of sinful responses. And of course, we have this energy, and that's not what God intends us to do with this energy. What does he want us to do with the energy? You know, when, when, you, when you keep the anger inside and you internalize it, you, the energy ends up destroying you. It, it, it hurts the other person, but it, it largely destroys you. And when you ventilate your anger on somebody else, you hurt and destroy the other person. What does God want you to attack, if not destroy, with the anger? He wants us to learn as Christians to get the anger under the Spirit's control and to direct it towards the problem. And to attack and destroy the problem, or solve the problem at least. Now, since most of the time, I don't know, maybe nine times out of ten, when we get angry, uh, the problem is or involves another person. You know, we usually get angry at people and things that they do or don't do more than at things, something is almost always necessary to get the anger from our heart to the problem. What is that? What do we have to do? What means do we have to use to get the anger from our heart to attack the problem? Well, humility is a, is a part of it, but... but that communication. communication. Exactly. Yeah, all, that, all those answers were true in terms of the internal, but I'm talking about the external. We have to communicate. And so when you think about it, if you clam up, you're not really communicating. I mean, you're communicating something, but you're not really communicating in, in an effective way. When you blow up, you're miscommunicating. And so we have to learn as Christians how to communicate. And there is so much in the Bible about communication. You would be astounded. When I started writing this book, it took me five years. I've never taken so long to write this conflict resolution book. Um, it took me five years to write. I wrote some other things in the interim. But I started, I was going to write a book on communication. I was going to take a look at, you know, I was going to try, try to do all the verses in the Bible on communication and say something about them. Well, boy, I mean, I'm not going to live long enough to ever do that. I found over a hundred, almost a hundred, and I'm not done. Just in the New Testament alone, I found a hundred specific injunctions about how we should and shouldn't communicate. A hundred ways that got, we're told to speak or not to speak or to communicate or not to communicate. Then there's the examples of good communication in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Old Testament imperatives, um, the principles in like the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, there are hundreds of verses in the Bible about communication. And we as Christians should be the best communicators in the world because God has given us so much information about how to communicate. The bottom line in all of this though is if you have an anger problem or your children have an anger problem, your, your spouse has an anger problem, there's vi- I'm going to say something that may shock you, but just hear me through. There's no hope for you to solve your anger problem fully unless you learn how to communicate. Because communication is just that important when we become angry. Oh, and by the way, um, I should probably make this point. Sometimes people clam them up initially until I can't take it anymore, and then they blow up. And sometimes people blow up, and they go on a three-day sulk. So, I mean, you can kind of mix and match these options. All right, so when... Let's see what's next here. Yeah, when my wife and I are having a conflict, uh, we try to express our differing opinions to each other in the hopes that one of us will persuade the other to his or her point of view. So we go back and forth for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Me trying to persuade her, her trying to persuade me. And hopefully, you know, by the time, by the time we get down here, by the time 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, either she's persuaded me to her way of thinking, I have persuaded her to my way of thinking, we come up with a hybrid solution, or we realize there's absolutely no biblical reason why a husband and wife can't have two differing, uh, differing opinions, you know, uh, uh, about the matter. 
But at the end of the day, we get to a conclusion. We get to a resolution. But what happens so often with anger is some people, when they become angry, they blow up and it stops the conversation. Two, three, four um, exchanges into the battle. Or somebody else very quietly clams up. And when that happens, the rest of the conflict never gets resolved. And so we have to learn as Christians how to call the other person back to the table to finish the conflict. It's sort of like you have two people and they're, they're communicating. And when one person clams up, um, they just very quietly, you know, walk away. They kind of break the circuit a little bit and walk away and the, con- and the communication just stops. You know, my job as a counselor is to keep them going, communicating back and forth until they can learn how to resolve things. But then somebody blows up and the conflict stops right there. So it's so important to realize that we, we can't just blow up. If we're angry, there's a time to excuse yourself and say, look, I'm sinfully angry. Or maybe even you're sinfully angry. Why don't we take a break and come back and talk about this? But you can't just walk away and not come back and resolve the conflict. Because what happens when couples <coughs> start out, they can talk about anything, right? And they have a conflict and this happens, you know, this happens. And then somebody says, um, I like it in slow motion. Somebody says, um, oh, well, I guess we can't talk about that anymore. And so they lop off that topic. And then they rock along for a while, have another conflict and it doesn't go well. And so the, the husband says, well, I guess we can't talk about that anymore. And year by year, they lop off more and more topics of communication. You know, and six years later, they're like this. And then they have bitterness. So it's very important for us to understand that as Christians, we've got to um, call the other person back to the conflict biblically. So here's an example. Honey, we're lost. No, I know exactly where we are. But we've passed this gas station six times already. It was three. I know it's around here somewhere. Well, maybe we should ask for directions. That's not necessary. It's around here somewhere. Okay, but we're already ten minutes late. I think it's just around the corner. I think we're lost. We're not lost. I thought you knew you said how to get there. I do know how to get there from work. There's a gas station. Would you please, I think I'll go in and ask for directions. Right? Well, what happens, you know, if somebody, out of fear or out of anger, blows up, or somebody, out of fear, clams up, sometimes it's anger and sometimes it's fear. Well, again, the conflict is not resolved and there is no resolution. Now, have we gone too far? Far, Blowing up and clamming up are not biblical responses to conflicts. Both reactions break the communication circuit, which cause the lights to go out immediately. When one person trips the circuit breaker, the other ought to <clears throat> make every effort to switch it back on immediately by gently calling his counterpart back to the conflict. And if necessary, by calling him to repentance. Now again, we're talking about two believers here. This can be done in a variety of ways. Essentially, the person who has not blown the circuit may urge the person who has to redo his sinful response, ask forgiveness for it in certain cases, and come back to the table recommitted to resolving the conflict according to biblical principles. We have something uh, we use sometimes called a... a, mm, a conference table. And there are rules for husband and wife conferring together. And if one person believes his spouse is not communicating biblically, violating any one of those dozen, you know, hundreds of principles of communication the Bible talks about, and directives, not just principles, but directives, he stands up. And the other person says, okay, let me try that again. He doesn't say, the other person doesn't say, what are you standing for? I didn't do anything wrong. Okay, I'm not sure I did wrong, but let me say that again. You want to give me some help? Well, actually, yeah, you did such and such and so and so. Okay, all right, let me do it again. So you have this prearranged and pre-agreed upon deal that when this happens, you're going to respond in a more biblical way. You're going to redo the offense. So what can be done to call the blower-upper back to the table? 
And these are just examples. Again, this is just my, you know, New York personality. You just do it however you want to, but just to give you some ideas of how it can be done. I think I know why you're upset. I shouldn't have said that. It was selfish. It was vindictive. It was untrue. It was an exaggeration. It was, you know, I judged your motive. But you're going to identify in biblical terms the exact nature of your sin. Will you please forgive me and allow me to try making my point a different way? You're quite upset. If I've sinned somehow, please tell me and I'll ask your forgiveness. But please, let's not end our conversation this way. I mean, sometimes the other person's upset and you have to ask him, okay, you're really upset. How have I sinned? Tell me. And then you have to have that humility and go back and take the hit for it, right? Ask for forgiveness. Please come back to the table. May I pray for us? And then can we please try to get this conflict resolved in a God-honoring way? The Bible tells us to try to get our differences resolved quickly. Can we please try a little longer to get on the same page? If therefore you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has ought against you, drop what you're doing. Leave there your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come again and offer your gift. Again in Ephesians 4, the same passage we're in. Um, uh, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Someone asked me, one of the kids last night asked me a really good question about that verse. Uh, I, actually, it wasn't kids. I think it was one of the parents. But anyway, someone asked me a question last night. Well, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm arguing with my husband or wife. And like, you know, we need to get some sleep. Do we have, really have to stay up all night long to make peace before we go to bed? No. The, the idea behind that passage is you resolve the relationship. You don't necessarily have to resolve the conflict. Look. We're both tired. We've been at this for an hour and a half. I know we're on the same page. Can we agree that tomorrow morning or tomorrow night um, we'll try to finish thing, this thing? I love you. You know, you know if, I've asked, if I've done anything I need to ask your forgiveness for tonight, let me do that. You resolve the relationship and then you can resolve the conflict the next day and, you know, maybe even more than that. And if you can't get it resolved, as we'll see later on, you may have to get somebody else involved. I mean, you know, you may have to go to another Christian to get a conflict resolved. About four years ago, Kim and I had a conflict and we just could not get it resolved. And um, actually, it was a series of conflicts. And so, um, you know, I've got to deal with Kim. If we can't get things resolved in a certain amount, a reasonable amount of time, then we'll get help. So I went to actually a guy in our church, another elder that I trained, and, you know, he sat down with us for two or three sessions and he helped us get the thing worked out, you know. And, you know, as was the case, there were, it wasn't just the conflict. There were uh, attitudes on both parts that needed some adjusting. But uh, here I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a biblical counselor. I'm a fellow. I go around the, all around the world teaching people how to counsel and resolve conflicts. But, you know, sometimes I need a counselor. And, I mean, you can't let pride keep you from getting the help you need because the Bible says if you can't get, if you can't get the conflict resolved. Remember those two women who couldn't get along with each other in Galatians? Odious and soon touchy, Remember? They had to get, that was a joke, odious and soon touchy, remember? <coughs> they needed true yoke fellow to help them get along with each other, right? You got Matthew 18. If you want to hear, then take one or two witnesses with you. Paul tells the Corinthians who are going to go to law with each other. Is it true that there's not one wise man among you? There's not one wise man among you in the whole church who will not be able to judge between brothers? And so there are all these verses that say we have to get other people involved if we can't get the conflict resolved ourselves. We may not be able to get this conflict resolved today, but can we at least try to get our relationship resolved before the sun goes down? The Bible says, do not uh, be angry and do not sin. I realize that you're upset, but the way you're trying to solve this conflict is sinful, and I think the best thing you can do right now is to seek my forgiveness for your you know, disrespectful attitude or your anger or your bitterness or whatever, and identifying in biblical terms the exact nature of your opponent's sin. And continue having this discussion with me according to biblical principle. I mean, honestly, when you and your wife, when you and your husband have a conflict and he sins, do you just withdraw or do you tell him? Do you tell her, honey, that was a false accusation. You just judged my motives. That was a very disrespectful way to talk. You're not living with me in an understanding way. And then you say, now you, before we continue, you need to ask my forgiveness for this. 
I mean, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but what? Matthew 18, Luke 17, 3, Galatians 6, 1 doesn't apply to husband-wife relationship? Where's that written? Of course it does. Am I right? Am I wrong? Could you repeat that in a different way? Or would you like to repeat that, please? All right, now, what can be said to call the clamor upper back to the table? I think I know why you're troubled, or whatever other descriptive term is appropriate, why you're upset, you know, why you're clamming up. I shouldn't have said that. It was, then you identify the sin in biblical terms, not in the words that man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, you know. Because when you, when, you when you identify your sin in biblical terms, that communicates what to the other person? Yeah, humility, and, and it, it, it communicates repentance because I'm not just saying, well, that was a dumb thing to say. You know, I judged your motives and I shouldn't have done that. What I said was vindictive. That communicates to the other person that you are repenting. You are changing your mind at, about the way you think. Right? You're re- you know the word metanoia, the Greek word for, for uh, repentance? Meta means again, and noise has to do with our thinking. You could etymologically translate metanoia to repent as to rethink something. And so when you rethink what you did and you describe it in biblical terms, you're communicating to the other person that you're repenting. And that gives the other person hope. But when you just blow it off and don't use biblical terms, then the other person you know, doesn't know if you really understand what you've done wrong. You seem to be rather frustrated with me. If I've sinned somehow, please tell me and I'll be happy to ask your forgiveness. But please, let's not stop trying to resolve this issue. Right? If you need to, you can add on. Bob says supposed to make every effort to maintain unity. By the way, you know, since I'm really stepping on toes today, um, and this goes for husband and wife, I mean, to what extent do you use the scriptures when you're having a conflict? I don't want to bash my husband over the head with the Bible or bash my wife. Well, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful for teaching, for conviction for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's not unbiblical to use the scriptures when you're... And honestly, look, okay, you guys know me well enough by now, all right? I have a pretty good handle on the Bible. I'm very opinionated. Um, I'm pretty good with my verbal skills. I mean, I can be like a locomotive going down the track at 200 miles an hour, but my wife can stop me pretty much on a dime by opening up the scriptures and convicting me. Because the truth is, I like to argue... You know, and I enjoy arguing. I, you know, I have to persuade people all day long. I kind of get stimulated by debate and argument and things like that. But most of the time, I am not willing to argue with God. And so the way Kim, you know, handles me and the way I handle her, because she's, you know, I kind of made a Frankenstein out of her, I think. You know, she's kind of the same way. I mean, we use the scriptures, not in a pejorative way, but we use the scriptures, administering them gently to each other so that we can bring conviction. Because it shouldn't be you versus your spouse. It should be what your spouse is doing or saying versus what the Bible teaches if you're, if you're married to a believer. And again, your spouse is going to be a lot less likely to argue with the Lord than argue with you. And so you have to learn how to use the scriptures appropriately. Please don't stop now. Can we pray and ask the Lord to help us get through this way, in a way that pleases Him? May we please keep trying to resolve this issue. If you'd like to take a break, perhaps we could do that, but we must make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, so I would like to keep trying to resolve this. Please tell me exactly what it is you see that I'm doing or saying that's tempting you to withdraw from this conversation so that we may continue. This issue is very important to me. I'm willing to do whatever is biblically necessary to get things between us resolved quickly, effectively, and with a minimum amount of sin. What can I do to make it easier for you to continue? I mean, stuff like this is really hard for the other person to resist. Humility begets humility. And when the other person sees that you are really trying to resolve this thing biblically, and you know, you're willing to take the hit for what you've done wrong, and you're using scripture, it just makes it a lot harder for the other person to continue to uh, withdraw. 
But again, it is, the, the, I'm not going to go into it here, but there's a chapter in the book called, the, um, it's called Love Communicates. And in the, in the chapter, I talk about the selfish nature of not communicating. He who separates himself seeks his own desire, intermittent argues against all sound wisdom. And so, you know, it's really unbiblical for us to withdraw. Now again, taking a brace, break and giving a rain check is one thing. Look, I'm simply angry right now, or you're simply angry right now, or look, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, can we, you know, let's finish this tomorrow. Giving the person a rain check is a lot different than just walking away and refusing to communicate. Th- th- that's just patently unbiblical. How about we simply take a 15-minute break, spend a little time in private prayer, then come back to the table for one or more rounds, uh, one more round of talks. I think uh, we will both do better if we had some time to compose our thoughts. All right, word of warning. There may be circumstances where there's good reason to postpone initiating or participating in a conflict. If the other person is enraged or under the influence of a substance, for example, it may be best to hold off having the discussion until the person is in full control of his faculties. If he has serious characterological issues, if if he is what the Bible calls an angry man or a fool or a scorner, then it may be wise to seek counsel before you proceed with the conflict, if you proceed at all. I would hope that wouldn't apply to too many people in this room, but I had to mention that in the book. Oh, okay. I'm going to take you through an example of this. Soon after their argument begins, Barney and Betty passionately embark on shifting the blame for the problem, an unresolved conflict from the night before, to each other. As the conversation rages on for well over 20 minutes, they begin interrupting one another. Barney raises his voice, makes several bitterly sarcastic comments to Betty, and calls her a very unflattering name. She retaliates by judging his motives quite uncharitably, talking to him in the most demeaning way, and exaggerates something he has done far beyond almost all recognition. They're both very hurt and angry, so they have little interest in the validity of the other person's perspective. At this point, all they really want to do is retaliate. Then, at 26 minutes and 12 seconds into the conflict, Barney remembers that all is not necessarily lost. It will be hard, he tells himself, but by God's grace, I'm going to be the first one to put my neck on the chopping block. The point of this, I'm going to continue in a second, but the point of this, you can be 45 minutes into a knockdown drag out, and even then, if you humble yourself, you may be able to, if you take the initiative now, you may be able to totally turn the, co- the conflict around that was going south very quickly by being the first one to acknowledge your sin, asking forgiveness, putting your neck on the chopping block. After a silent prayer of repentance to God and a plea for the grace to clothe himself with humility, he says to Betty, Hold on. You think I'm to blame and I think you're to blame. Let me go first. I need to ask your forgiveness for the terrible way I've been talking to you for the last few minutes. I've been sinfully angry and in the process I've been very harsh with you. I've unjustly shifted the blame to you and I shouldn't have called you that terrible name. I shouldn't have even allowed it to go through my mind. If I've been, uh, and I've been too sarcastic with you and vindictive, I'm sure I've hurt you very much and I'm sorry for that. I know I don't deserve it, but do you think you could find it in your heart to forgive me? Ladies, I mean, how are you going to handle that one, right? Or guys, I mean, how are you going to handle that? If in the middle of a knockdown, drag out your wife, primes the pump, takes the initiative and just takes the hit immediately, you know, even while you're still furious at her. Sure, I'll forgive you. But you, but you really are sorry. I know. Is there anything else I need to ask your forgiveness for? I suppose that covers it. At this point, Barney's trying to figure out how he'll talk to Betty about the things that she's done to offend him in the hopes of getting her to ask for forgiveness because now he's thinking, okay, now I've got to talk to her about what she's done wrong. You know. So am I going to spell it out or am I going to say to her, you know, is there anything you need to ask my forgiveness for? Wink, wink, hint, hint. Betty knows what's coming next, so she preempts him by saying, Barney, before you go any further, let me ask your forgiveness for what I know I've done wrong. To begin with, I'm also guilty of blame shifting and for judging your motives. And I was way too angry and disrespectful with you. Will you forgive me for these things? Sure, but I think you forgot something. I probably did. What else do I need to make right with you? Well, I think you falsely accused me by your hyperbolic account of our discussion last night. 
you're right, I didn't mean to falsely accuse you. I just thought if I exaggerated what you said a little, all right, maybe more than a little, you'd realize how much your words hurt me. Honey, I can appreciate the fact that you want me to understand the impact of your words, but do you understand the impact, uh, the impact of my words, that should be, but do you understand the impact of your words on me? When you exaggerated what I said, especially with the tone in your voice and the uh, contorted expression that you put on your face, I became so angry at what I perceived was a blatantly false accusation that at that moment I really could care less how much my words might have hurt you. I understand you're right. I shouldn't have done it. Will you please forgive me? I will. Thank you. Thank you for going first and showing more humility than I did. And they lived happily ever after. You're welcome. So where do we go from here? Shall we continue with our discussion or shall we take a little break? I would like to take a little break, but I promise you when we get back together, I'll have a much better attitude. Me too. Thank the Lord for giving us the grace to turn around this disastrous conversation. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly that way. It doesn't have to be quite that thorough. But the point is, even after a 20 or 30 minute conflict, one of you, by humbling yourself, can turn the whole thing around. It really can happen that way. All right. Let's do one more. I have like seven of these definitions, but I'm not going to be able to cover them all. Let, let me just do one more for you. Gentleness involves, because I want to save a few minutes for Q&A. Gentle, gentleness involves knowing how to think during times of provocations. Conflicts can evoke all kinds of emotions within, within us. And, you know, when we're angry, um, the adrenaline kicks in and it just becomes easier for us to, to, to respond unbiblically. Again, the Bible says the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. And so the best solution is to plan ahead, to do what is right in the sight of all men, is to think ahead of time what we're going to say when we know we're going to be provoked by others. Another mental weapon that gentle people have at their disposal is the ability to interrogate themselves about their provocations. They ask themselves questions. You know, I find myself getting angry, so, okay, has the other person really sinned against me? If the answer is yes, then okay, uh, I may have the right kind of anger along with the wrong kind of anger, or maybe the right kind of anger, but if the answer is no, then I'm off base. If the other person hasn't sinned, then I'm angry at her, then she doesn't have to repent. I do. Is there an idolatrous desire in my life after which I'm lusting? You know, what is it that I want so much that because you didn't give it to me? Is it respect? Is it money? Is it time? I mean, what is it? Do I have all the facts or am I jumping to a hasty conclusion? Is my heart magnifying a tolerable trial to the level of an intolerable one? What scripture passages should guide my thoughts and words in this manner? How can I respond in a way that will attack the problem and glorify God? I'll tell you what. I'm just going to give you the rest of the definitions. I'm not going to unpack them for you, but at least you'll have, you'll, you can unpack. You can kind of take the Jolly Rancher thing and suck on it at home, okay? Fifth, gentleness is knowing how to command not only your thoughts, but also your tongue, your countenance, and your body language during times of provocation. As I'm standing here talking to you, I'm talking not just with the tone in my voice, not just with the words in my voice, but the tone in my voice, as well as my nonverbal communication. When you think about anger, I mean, think about all the different ways that we communicate anger apart from our words. Even in the midst of a conflict, a heated conflict, a humble person can disarm a proud person an angry opponent because a gentle answer turns away wrath but are righteous but harsh words stir up anger. You've got examples and you know, I was going to read them but you can go home and look at them. L- remember how um, how Esau and Jason uh, how, I'm sorry how Esau approached Jacob you know he sent everybody ahead of him and then he humbled himself how David on two different occasions, you know, humbled himself and got Saul to return to normality temporarily. Abigail versus David. So you have the words, 
you have the tone of voice and you have the nonverbal communication. And sociologists tell us that in our culture, the tone of voice actually carries with it seven more times, in some context, seven more times the meaning than the words do. And I know that's hard to imagine, but imagine you come home from work, ladies, your, your, your husband comes home from work and you, you make him a meal and you say to him, would you like some more meatloaf? Would you like some more schnitzel? Right? And he uh, says, uh, no, thank you. Now, he can say that in two different ways. He can say it in a pleasant tone of voice, no, thank you, as if to say, no, I've actually had a big helping. It was delicious, but I couldn't touch another bite. Thank you. Or he can say, no, thank you, as if to say, with the tone of his voice, I about gagged trying to swallow that slop, and I'm not about to put another bite in my mouth. <clears throat> and that's all communicated with the tone of one's voice. And then, of course, there's the nonverbal communication. All right. Do we have any questions about gentleness or anger, any of that stuff that we've covered the last Absolutely. hour? About a slide you had up a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Which one? Uh, go back one more. Uh, right there. Mm-hmm. I'm laughing because I know that, well, Janet kind of is, is amazed not having grown up with any brothers. But one of the things that, that I, I sense is kind of interesting to her is how I could look at a, whether it's a horse race or a card game or a football game, it's about winning. It's always about winning. It's about the competition, and it's really less sometimes about the subject matter than it is about I'm not going to lose. But, but here's one of the things I've always tried to tell my kids, and I'm sitting here and there's a conflict going on with me right now, and it's that first one. Jesus let other people sin against him, and he remained quiet. He, rebu- he usually rebuked them. Sometimes he answered a fool as his folly deserves, so that the fool did walk, didn't walk away rising in his own eyes. But uh, he never sinned. He never, never, never talented, right? And, and so sometimes I, I wonder if I can do it, which maybe I'm a, it's impossible to do it, but how much, and I'm not, even, I'm not even accusing anybody here, especially Janet, but how much am I supposed to just swallow and say you know what I'm human you're human and, and that sin against me is one I, I just I just gotta I just gotta take. when we get to the last when we get to the but time we're done I think you'll have a better answer to that question but again if it's a, if it's an occasional thing you know is the glory of man to overlook a transgression you overlook as much as you can you know, you mentioned something in, in one of the chapters of the book, and I don't have time to go into it, but I talk about the different postures that people take when they argue. I mean, the ideal posture is the resolver. But, you know, there's, there's one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the persons is the winner, like, like you said. You know, the attitude of winner is, look, you just admit that you're wrong and I'm right and the conflict will be over. You know, it doesn't matter. Anything else, just... just Quickly admit that you don't have a case that I'm winning, and we'll be out of here. We'll be done. You know, don't waste my time, kind of thing. And the the response of a resolver, in contrast to that, is look. It really doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. Um, you know, if I've sinned, um, I'm open to that. What matters is we get on the same page as quickly as possible, uh, without sinning, and you know, try to find a, a solution to this problem that's honoring to God. And there are other kinds. There's the person who ignores the conflict. Oh, you're making a mountain out of molehill. I'm not even going to bother talking to you about it. I can't believe you're so worried about this. You know, and then there's the yielder. Oh, you know, whatever you want, honey, just don't get upset. You know, I don't want any tension. You know, there are all these different types of postures that people come into the conflict with. And there's a few others I've put in there. But anyway, yeah, so it's important to understand, you know, what our posture is when we go into the conflict. But, you know, most people, I said to the kids last night, most people think that they're peacemakers and they're not. They're peace lovers. A peacemaker knows sometimes for there to be peace, there's got to be war first. Sometimes for there to be peace, there's got to be conflict. And then peace will come at the end of the conflict. But some people are so afraid of conflict that they run or they yield or they do any other number, number of unbiblical ways, the things to avoid the conflict. And that's not being a peacemaker. They think they're, oh, I'm peacemaker. I'm not going to push his buttons. I'm not gonna. <coughs> sometimes you need to push his buttons. Biblically. Question? Okay.
have been uh, influenced by the home that they came out of. Yeah, I think it was Ezekiel said, as is the mother, so is the daughter. So, you know, there, there are, and of course that goes to men too, you know, but th- there are things that we learn from our parents and um, we can't ignore the fact that we've learned some things, but there, there are two things we have to keep in mind about that. That while our parents may have taught us all kinds of ungodly ways to respond, um, first, we're Christians, okay? And as Christians, we have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold from the worthless behavior that we have received by tradition from our fathers, but with the blood of Christ. And then secondly, Christians are, are not, you know, we were a child back then, and now we're an adult, and we've got to, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child, I reasoned as a child, I spoke as a child, you know, argued as a child. But when I became a, a man, I put away childish things. So, I mean, yes, it may be harder, but at some point, you've got to say, I can no longer blame my parents for things they taught me. I'm a Christian, I'm an adult, I'm going to have to learn biblical ways of res- resolving these things. But I mean, it's true for, it's true for all of us, you know? My, I, I'm the oldest of six. I, I, I'm the oldest of six brothers, and it was an Italian household. And so, like you know, our our home. I remember going back from college. Well, first time I came back from college, having been away from them for six months, it was like, whoa. The dinner table was like, whoa. This is like overkill, you know. And some people come from totally different backgrounds. So you know, you just have to. And there are good things in some cultures and bad things, um, but you just have to evaluate uh, everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. You know, the things, that the, the, the style of communication or any, any, anything in your parents' marriage that's commendable that you want to bring into your marriage with your spouse's consent, then by all means do it. You know, things that are not necessarily patently delineated in Scripture. Um, but apart from that, you don't want to bring it, you don't want to export anything unless both of you agree it needs to come in. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the spouse is going to have to be patient with the person like that because it's not going to be able to change overnight. And as long as the person is willing to acknowledge that it's wrong, you know, the thing that's one of the beauties of biblical counseling. You know, we don't, unlike Freudians and many of the other 500 versions of counseling that are out there, we don't have to spend years and years trying to figure out how we got messed up. We, you know, we don't spend three years in psychoanalysis, right? We know how he got messed up. We got messed up because we're born sinners and our parents taught us stuff, you know, and we learned stuff from other people. So at the end of the day, it may be helpful to figure out specifically at what point how we got messed up, but on the other side of the coin, it really doesn't matter. Sometimes we don't know, we don't remember. What, what matters most, this is what the Bible says about what I'm doing, it's wrong, and this is what the Bible says I have to do to correct it. That's all I need to know. Please be patient with me. I'd asked you earlier about the <coughs> that you can kind of let your hair down Your best game, yeah. All day long, mm-hmm. all of the folks you encounter. So by the time, like most people, at the end of the day, you're overdrawn. You got less patience, yeah. less. You got day. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the family gets the leftovers because mm-hmm. most of us, especially us non-morning yeah. people, right. you don't wake up and spend an hour of quality time investing in your home and then go off to work. You wake up, hit the door, gotta go. Mm-hmm. You go through all day long. You come at the end of the day and you find out. There's something waiting for you that needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So is there a question there? Yeah, when, when can you let your hair down if you're supposed to be investing I, I, in family? I, I, think, I think if you regularly punch the clock with your family, and again, you know, I made the illustration about the job, but I mean, you know, you have an eight, ten hour day. It doesn't, it's not going to take you usually that much time to unpack the responsibilities at home. And then after that, you can chill. But if, if you're, for most Christian wives, if, if they know their husbands are making them a priority and they know that their husbands come home and routinely punch the clock with them and set aside even a reasonably small amount of time to communicate with them, then on those days when they're really, really tired, they're going to usually give them a pass. They're going to say, look, you know, and you say to them, honey, look, I had a really, really tough day today. Um, I'm really tired. Would you mind leading family time today? Or would you mind if I just kind of vegged out and, you know, watched the ball game for a couple hours? I'm just, if we're faithful, then our family's going to see that and they're going to be more willing to let us off the hook. But there's, there's one um, commitment that I ask every couple I counsel to make to me. I ask every person I make to me, uh, I counsel to make 
I ask every person I counsel to make one commitment, and I ask every couple to make a second commitment. The first commitment I ask every person I counsel to make to me is this. Um, will you promise that for at least as long as I'm counseling you, you'll spend a minimum of 10 minutes every day reading God's Word? Because, I mean, the Spirit's going to work through the Word. I don't know, they're coming to their Christian counselor because they want the Holy Spirit to change. I mean, the Spirit is not going to work apart from the Word. You don't, you don't have the Word, you're basically handcuffing the Holy Spirit because He's going to work through the Word. That's the only way He said He would work. He may work in other ways, but you're kidding yourself if you think He's going routine to make, routinely make an exception to you. He works through the Word. But the second uh, commitment I ask every couple to make Would you commit to me that for at least as long as I'm counseling you, that you will spend 20 minutes a day giving each other your undivided attention? I want you to have couch time every day for 20 minutes. Just husband and wife. No kids, no telephone. The kids are in bed or otherwise occupied. You're going to sit down, give your spouse, give each other 20 minutes of undivided attention. I'll give you some homework, some things you can do during that time, but I don't want you to use that time just to do your counseling homework. I just want you to get used to talking to each other. And those two commitments, those two homework assignments that I give people do more to stabilize people in marriages than any other single thing I can tell you to do. So if a guy comes home and he's punching the clock with his wife on a regular basis, um, first of all, she's going to feel like he's making her a priority and it's going to be a whole lot easier for her to let him off the hook if he's tired and exhausted. So again, the more faithful she sees that you are, the easier it's going to be for her to overlook things to not get bitter, to, you know, give you pass when she knows you really are tired.